I mentioned earlier in this conversation that I've had all these mentors and sports coaches and people that have helped me along, pushed me along, guided me, given me support. And I want to, I want to pay it forward. I want to give back to young and up and coming leaders and, and help them be the best that they can possibly be. Welcome to Off the Record, a podcast featuring leaders on IBJ Media's Indiana 250 list. I'm Nate Feltman, CEO of IBJ Media, which publishes the Indiana 250, a list of the most influential business people in the state. Today, I'm joined by the longtime president and CEO of the Indiana Chamber of Commerce, Kevin Brenniger. Kevin is retiring from the chamber in January after a 31-year career with the state's premier business advocacy group. He joined the chamber in 1992 as a member of its advocacy team and was promoted to Senior Vice President of Government Affairs in 1997. He became President and CEO five years later. Before joining the chamber, Kevin spent nine years as a financial analyst for the Indiana Senate's Finance Committee and three years as a management analyst for the state's Legislative Service Agency. As you might have guessed by now, Kevin is a numbers guy. In fact, he's recognized as an expert in the areas of business and property taxation, local government, the state budget, and school finance. Over the years, Indiana governors and state leaders have named Kevin to numerous public policy entities, including Indiana's Education Roundtable, the state's Revenue Forecast Committee, the Citizens Commission on Taxes, and the Government Efficiency Commission. Under Kevin's leadership, the State Chamber has played a key role in Indiana's economic resurgence. Kevin and the Chamber's advocacy to improve Indiana's tax and regulatory environment have been critical to Indiana's improved rankings as a place to do business. Kevin sits on the Distinguished Alumni Councils of the Indiana University Kelly School of Business and Paul H. O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs. He's also a former president of the Noblesville School Board. Kevin grew up in Bloomington and graduated from IU. He's a Hoosier through and through. He's also an avid golfer with three holes in one and a double eagle on his record. And he's a two-time member of IBJ Media's list of the 250 most influential Hoosiers. Kevin, welcome to Off the Record Podcast. Thanks so much for being here today. Nate, thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here with you and your listeners. Well, before we get into your long career at the Chamber, I want to inform our listeners a little bit about your early days, your pre-Chamber days, before you became an expert in taxation and public finance. You described yourself as having grown up on the wrong side of the tracks in Monroe County, that you were a child of a young, single mom. Tell us a little bit about your formative years and how your upbringing in a lower-income home played into your career decisions. Actually, my parents were my mother was 16, my father was 18 when I was born, and they were married, and our first home was in a trailer park, but they were divorced when I was two years old. So then I was with a single mom until my mother, years later, married my, my stepfather. We moved back in with my grandparents, where my mother worked at the RCA factory in Bloomington that existed there on the south side of town. She, now Cook, right? Now, now yeah. Cook's taken all of that over. She worked there during the week, and then she waitressed at a steakhouse on Friday and Saturday nights to make money. So I've spent more time with my grandparents than I did my mother those early years. And as I mentioned uh, off camera or off, off podcast here, my very first job was at four years old fetching beer for my grandfather because he was a laborer and had fallen off a roof and was uh, 
partially paralyzed. And, and so I got a penny a can. And then I, I think parlayed that entrepreneurial spirit into other things, including later when we moved to across the road from Cascades Golf Course on the north side of Bloomington. I was a caddy. And I was also a, um, a, a ball shagger, which I want to explain that because <laughs> some people might get the wrong idea. The course there had an air practice area, but they didn't provide range balls. And so guys would come usually with bowling ball bags full of old golf balls. And it, you'd hit your own balls, but then you had to go around and pick them up. Well, I offered to pick the balls up for them. So I would take the bowling ball bag out into the course and I would be the target. And because I found it was quicker to pick the balls up as they're hit rather than wait until they were all hit. And I got even to the point where I would catch them in the bowling ball bag if they hit it relatively close to me. And that turned out to be what we today call a transferable skill because it helped me uh, play center field and uh, wide receiver on the high school baseball and football teams. <laughs> Those are some good early stories. So you also were a police officer. You started uh, as, a, as a police officer, and we've known that one of your interesting experiences was delivering a baby in a snowstorm. Yes. But tell us a little bit about your early careers as a police officer and how you got into that. I had a goal of being a state trooper, and IU had a program, it was relatively new, where you could get your law enforcement training over the course of two summers, which worked for me because I was going to be in Bloomington anyway, having grown up there. And at the end of the second summer, you were a fully licensed police officer working for IUPD part-time during the school year and going to school full-time. And in December 13th, yesterday, uh, 1977, there was this big snowstorm and I was on foot patrol around a group of dormitories, and I get a call to go up to the lounge of the fourth floor of Rab Hall and Teeter Quad because there was a girl having a baby. And I go charging up there, and sure enough, it's, it's on its way. Water's broke and everything. The RA had found out that she and a friend were trying to have this baby on their own. She called the police, and I was the first one there. Because of the snowstorm, it took the ambulance 20, almost 30 minutes to get there. And in that time, the baby was born. And I was very fortunate that in our law enforcement training, we had watched a civil defense film about an emergency childbirth down in a bunker, kind of back to your Cold War days. And this couple had agreed to have it you know, filmed all the way through in all of its glory. I'm guessing there was a doctor off camera, and I was able to flash back to that training film and play coach and catcher, <laughs> basically, is this, is this young freshman girl who had gotten pregnant the previous spring was having a baby the week before finals. You mentioned to me previously that December 13th is also an interesting day and a fateful day on that day as well. What's the other story there? I was a four-sport athlete in high school back when you could do that. and You'd have to specialize like the kids do today with all the travel, soccer and basketball and things. And I had narrowed my college choices down to either going to the University of Evansville to play basketball. At that time, they were a D2 school and they had a very successful program. And I was offered opportunity to go down there and play basketball or stay in Bloomington and do this law enforcement program, assuming I could get in, which ultimately I did. Had I chose to go to the University of Evansville on that same night that I helped deliver the baby, December 13th, 1977, 
their basketball team took off for an away game and there was an ice storm and ice over the wings and the plane crashed and killed all those aboard. And so I think about that every year and I believe that that God wanted me to be there to help that girl with that baby and not be on that plane. But obviously would have changed my life immensely. And then last night we had uh, my retirement celebration from 31 years at the chamber, 22 as president and CEO. And um, it was just a fantastic event. You know, the governor was there, the speaker of the pro tem, Chief Justice Rush, lots of board members. And so now I'll have something really, really positive to think about each year when December 13th rolls around as well as these other two things that one that happened and one that could have happened back in December of 1977. That's pretty incredible. uh, Life's uh, strange twist of fate. Oh, isn't it? It is. We're obviously lucky uh, to have you done all the incredible things that uh, that you've gone on to do. Before we get into some of those things, I wanted to ask you about your passion for Indiana, because it's clear that you, you have such a strong passion to move our state forward and to see continuous improvement. Where did that passion come from? I think it came from the legislators that I got to work with early in my career and the opportunities that I was been given, you know, coming from, uh, I mean, I didn't have a bright future when I was born or, or growing up. And, and I told our board at its meeting a month ago when I was giving final remarks, uh, you know, I said I had about a one in a million chance to end up being only the seventh president of the Indiana Chamber of Commerce in its 101-year history. But I had people that believed in me. I had a mother that wanted me to have a college education. She had moved over to IU and was working there and saw kids getting their degrees and doing good things. And she wanted that for me. And she sort of had me by the the private parts because I played four sports. And after the first nine weeks of high school, and I brought home a report card of B's and C's, and I thought, oh, I'm great. I'm eligible to play the next semester. She sat me down and said, that's not good enough. She said, if you bring home anything less than a B from now on, you won't be able to play because of my standard. And that got me more focused on my academics. And I just, I've had so many mentors and opportunities and education was sort of my way out of getting on the other side of the tracks, as we say, and and had the privilege to work for two brilliant public servants, Larry Borst and Morris Mills. Larry was chairman of the finance committee. Morris was the, the budget subcommittee chairman. Morris was a Harvard-educated business person whose family owned all the farmland that's now Ameriplex there south of I-70. And and Larry was a brilliant guy who graduated from high school when he was 16. And by, I think, age 22, he was a veterinarian and just an immense public service. So that I think that and being around the legislature and seeing the impact of public policy, traveling with the state budget committee for nine years, all that just built this passion. And then while I was at the Senate, I uh, started and finished an MBA in corporate finance and got interested in businesses and had the opportunity to come to the chamber, which has been the perfect job for me because I, you know, continue my passion for public policy, but I got to do it for the business community who was employing people and, and helping to drive our economy. Well, I want to switch gears a little bit about your experiences as leading the chamber the last 22, but being there for uh, over 30 years. You've seen a lot of changes in, in that time period in the political climate over the years. At one time, I would venture to say the priorities of the state chamber and the Republicans in the state house were very similar or maybe identical for, I'm sure, some periods. 
And that, of course, sometimes is, the, is still the case today. Oh, yeah. And sometimes the legislature decides to go on a, a little different way. How, in your view, has interacting with the legislature today changed and different from maybe when you first started at the chamber some 30 years ago? Part of it is the improvements of technology and transparency over time. You know, when I first started the chamber, we didn't have cell phones. And so you were literally out of the office for that period of time. They have, they still have them. They had pay phones with booths over there. You, you've, yeah. see, you've seen them. I think there were like four of them and there'd be people lined up waiting to use the pay phone if you want to call back to the office or if they wanted to get in touch with you, they have to send somebody over. And so it was in some ways more difficult to connect with legislators. Now, you know, we've got the phone numbers and text legislators, uh, literally sometimes helping them with their testimony or their presentation of a bill on the floor or, you know, frankly, telling them how we, we want them to vote. The committee meetings, the, the floor sessions were not televised or recorded. Now, if you want to go watch uh, last week's committee hearing, you can go look it up on Access Indiana and watch it. So, much more technology. And back in the 90s, you know, half the time the House was controlled by the Democrats and or it was 50-50 twice. So back then we had to play a lot more uh, defense against what we considered anti-business bills, labor bills, other things. We helped create poor business majorities in the House and the Senate through our political action group, Indiana Business for Responsive Government. And got a lot done in the early 2000s and, and after 2010. And then more recently, as you're suggesting, with the supermajorities, they have their own challenges and create problems because to win, the district maps now are so precise, so either absolute Democrat or absolute Republican, that it's sort of carved out the middle, the moderate. And we look for people who are problem solvers, who care about business and jobs and growth and, and the economy. And you know, we have more legislators that are more interested, as you suggest, in the social issues on who are what I would call ideologues. And uh, they're, they're difficult for the leadership to corral. And it's caused us to have to deal with some issues that aren't blocking and tackling core business issues. But in some cases, there are issues that our, that our members care about, and, you know, things like housing and child care. Uh, we never talked about that. Those things just sort of took care of themselves. But now uh, employers are needing and wanting to help their employees solve those issues so they can get them to come to work every day and, and do their jobs. That's what I was going to ask you next. Uh, you kind of dove into the topic of how some of those issues have changed over the years, like child care and housing and even health care costs, and maybe even uh, getting into anti-discrimination measures. Some of those things have, have come up, and, and I'm sure will get, continue to come up. But those are things that your members care about, and so you're seeing some of those issues that the chamber ordinarily may not have been involved with. Now you need to be, it sounds like. And part of it is because of our our own success. You know, we we've taken some of the more core business issues and concerns off the table. We've eliminated the inventory tax. We've eliminated the corporate gross receipts tax. We became the first right-to-work state in the Midwest. We have high-reaching standards and accountability for schools. We've enacted telecommunications deregulation, transportation infrastructure funding, th those kind of blocking and tackling things. And now in today's world, those are still important for business decisions on investing in Indiana or growing in Indiana, 
but they're not as important as they were at the turn of the century because we're in a much more talent-driven economy. And it's about how do we build up talent? How do we attract talent? How do we retain it? How do we help individuals be able to do their jobs with childcare and housing? How do we lift up the, the uh, workforce participation rate, which is below the national average? And if you break it down by education level, barely 50% of Hoosiers who just have a high school diploma and are of working age are in the workforce. And those high, that are high school dropouts, uh, 60% of them are not in the workforce. And part of that is because they can't command a wage that's high enough to be able to go to work and pay for childcare. Right. Now the issues uh, are changing. Speaking of that, one change that I know has been challenging that uh, I think the chamber has advocated for, but and as well as advocates who want to see more government efficiency, is making government more efficient in terms of government reform. So we have more units of government, whether it's county government, township government, or even school districts than states that are much larger than Indiana, yeah. both by population and area. What do you think has to happen for to be some progress on, on that front in terms of uh, government reform? We were all over and part of helping to drive uh, what became known as the Kernan Shepherd Report under Governor Daniels. And there were some of uh, those recommendations accomplished, but in our view, not nearly enough. I mean, we eliminated township assessors and, and eliminated all those vast disparities that we were getting in the property tax system and some other things. But I'm afraid that, and let me give you my example that I use a lot, and that's comparing Indiana to Florida. Florida is three times our population, twice our land mass. Florida has 67 counties. Indiana has 92. We even have arguably too many counties. Florida has 67 school districts, one per county. Indiana has 290. And guess what the student enrollment of the smallest school district in Indiana is? Well, I think I read it somewhere, oh. it probably in an article that uh, was talking about some of your work, but uh, I remember it being very small. It was, it was under 500, if I remember. 144. Wow. How do you have a school district that small? So, And then Indiana has 1,002 townships. Florida has zero. So they, they serve a lot more people over a much larger area with much fewer units of government, and that's the case with other states as well. And we know that when we talk about school districts, that 85, 90% of those districts have lost enrollment in the last 10 years. So they're not going to grow their way out of this. They're going to become more and more strained as their enrollments decline and they have less dollars per pupil going to those districts to spread over their overhead. And so I'm afraid the answer to your question is things are going to have to be become more dire and they're going to suffer financially and, and the, the children and the people in those communities are, are going to get poor government services, less educational opportunity, less educational oppor achievement, less economic achievement until it hits a critical phase. And then the policymakers will at some point be forced to, to do something about it. Can the legislature do this on their own or, or is it extra efforts beyond the legislature to start, take school districts for as an example? I mean, is that is that something the legislature could do if they really wanted to do that in terms of consolidation? Well, they did it back in the late 1950s, early 1960s. We went back then from 900 school districts, almost basically one per township, to 300, cut it by two-thirds. So 
Technically, you can, but there's got to be enough will. And, and to date, it's been treated sort of as a third rail of, oh, we can't touch this. But what's interesting, Nate, is every legislator I've talked to about this in the last five years agrees we have too many school districts. But there's hardly anyone there you know, waving the banner or getting, filing a bill to do anything about it. And there are different ways to do this. You don't have to just consolidate the whole district. You can consolidate administration. An example I use is Randolph or Green County. Randolph County has 25,000 people in, in the entire county of all ages. They don't need five school superintendents. They don't need five bus directors and food service directors and all that. That could all be combined. Even if you technically keep the districts, you could do distance learning. You could do STEM centers where the kids go to their regular districts two or three days a week and then go to the STEM centers so that they have an opportunity to have higher reaching classes that they wouldn't otherwise have access to and don't today. Um, and, and what's concerning is that over half of our school districts have less than 2,000 students and 20% have less than 1,000 students in all of K-12. through That limits the offerings. It limits the ability to spread overhead. And so you've got lower teacher salary scales and, and all that. Yeah, it's an opportunity, it seems like, to make a lot of improvement as we think about improving education in general. It seems like an obvious one. Exactly. There's there's too much money that's not getting into the classroom because of having too many school districts. It'll come someday. It's I consider it a piece of unfinished business, but um, I charged up that hill a few times <laughs> with my team, and it'll happen eventually. Well, speaking of unfinished business, that's one example. What are some other examples that you say, gosh, you know, this is a big opportunity for Indiana uh, going forward that the chamber might advocate for in the future? The whole township thing, which kind of goes along with the, the too many units of government. Maybe one that uh, I've been thinking about, and I'm not sure that the chamber has ever taken a position on this or not, but, you know, the city of Indianapolis, and it's not just Indianapolis, whether it's South Bend, Evansville, some of the bigger cities, it feels like all of them struggle with how they finance road and repair, maintenance and improvements. And so the, the road funding formula has always been a, a touchy subject as well, kind of like school districts. Is there anything that you think we need to do to be able to better serve our, our cities in the state uh, that are becoming, of course, more populous and creators of economic development opportunity? How, how do you think about that one, for example? Well, your question is tied into a, a bigger issue, which is one of the most important issues that the state needs to address and that the chamber is already deeply involved in. In fact, there was a study committee this summer, and that is the fact that our highway, road, street, interstate funding is uh, predominantly from fuel taxes. There's some registration fees, but every time someone trades in a gas-powered or diesel-powered car and buys an electric vehicle, that's one more person that's not paying to support the, the road maintenance and, and road expansion, but yet they're using it and, and doing damage. So we've got to, and other states are, are dealing with this as well, we, we've got to figure out a financing system that isn't, at least not entirely or nearly as much, reliant on fuel taxes because we've got these vehicles that run on, on an energy source other than gas and diesel and say, well, okay, some sort of electricity use tax. But think about this, Nate. In the not-too-distant future, we're going to have vehicles running on hydrogen. So we've got to figure that out. The logical or a logical solution would be a vehicle's miles traveled tax. That, you know, we don't care what your fuel source is. It's how, how heavy is your vehicle 
and how many miles do you drive in a month or a year, whatever period of time. That requires either a honor system with audits like we have with our income tax system, or it requires some sort of device that collects the information on how far you drove. That's not popular with the citizens. Uh, that feels like Big Brother. And, and when I hear that argument, I say, well, you have a cell phone? You can be tracked right now, you know, and GPS. And I mean, every time I get in my car here down, downtown and the phone connects to the Bluetooth in the car, and the first thing that pops up is the route home and how long it projects it's going to take. So that's already happening, but we have to get our citizenry comfortable with that. But that's one of the biggest challenges on the horizon. So the chamber just released a report uh, entitled Indiana Prosperity 2035, and the report card includes uh, 49 different metrics for comparing Indiana to other states. And it concludes, I've got my research right, and it concludes that Indiana ranks in the top 10 and seven of the metrics, but the state ranks near the bottom for some, not all, metrics like healthcare costs and entrepreneurism and venture capital. Maybe talk a little bit about the report and things that you, you think might be generated in terms of thinking about how we're going to improve our competitive position, what, what some of the reaction might be on that front. Well, let me first distinguish between two different documents. There's our Indiana Prosperity 2035 plan, which we released in August, and it's got the number 35 goals across six different pillar areas, education, workforce, quality of place, energy, transportation, et cetera. And then what we just released this week is a report card that's going to be a baseline for this And that's what I'm project. referencing, I yeah, think, the report card. Yeah, you're, yeah, you're right. referencing the report card that has the 49 metrics that tie to the goals that are in the plan. And what concerns me a bit is that we are improving in many more, a larger number of the metrics than we're declining in terms of absolute progress. That's encouraging. But our rate of growth relative to the growth of the U.S. average is slower in a larger number of the metrics than it is higher than the average. So we're improving more than we're declining in absolute terms, but we're not improving as fast as other states on many of the metrics. So they're moving faster, and, and that's not what we want to do. But that's why we produce these report cards so we know yeah, absolutely. and have the data and then can look at you know what policies do we need to enact and, and directions we need to go as a, as a state to improve. And, and we've used these plans. This is now the third plan. Uh, we started the first one 2000 to 2010, the second one 2011 until uh, just recently, and now this is a 2035 time horizon because we believe that having that as our guiding star, we will help the state get more done than we would otherwise if we didn't. Um, you know, there's a number of people, I remember Governor Bai as one used to say, if you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. <laughs> and so, you know, it's important to have a guiding star. And I would say this as well, Nate, when we did our second plan, the 2025 plan, we came to the realization that elected officials, as good as they are, might be, and as much as we might like them, get term limited, like Governor Daniels, Governor Holcomb. They retire. They get defeated. They decide to run for another office, like Senator Braun is doing. And 
they have short time horizons. And we came to the conclusion that it is the Indiana Chamber of Commerce that needs to take ownership and responsibility for Indiana's economic future. Because even our, our good friends at IADC, you know, there's been a lot of turnover since that entity was created. You were in that role for how long? I was there the first four years at the IADC. Okay. Right. Well, that that's almost longer than than most. So, you know, even, even there, things turn over. But the chamber's been here for 101 years. I hope that they'll be here 101 more. I don't know that I'll be around <laughs> to see that. I doubt it. So, you know, we've taken upon ourselves that responsibility and to be, you know, policy leaders and have that long view. And we've accomplished a lot relative to the goals in the first two plans. And I, I fundamentally believe that we've accomplished more than we would have otherwise as a chamber and as a state. And I believe we will do that again with this 2035 plan because it it's thought-provoking, it's goal-setting, it generates conversation. We've already had a couple phone calls uh, on the report card of people complaining about the metrics that they make us look bad in one area or another. And I said, you know, the data are what the data are. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's important to keep score, and that's what you're that's what you're doing, and uh, and to relative to our competition. And we do that every other year. So the plan just uh, when we release the plan, it doesn't just have one day splashed and then go up on the shelf. But it's a living, breathing document that we're benchmarking to on a regular basis. Let's take a quick break. This is Off the Record Podcast. Get caught up on the state's top business news every business day with the Inside Indiana Business Radio On Demand podcast. Available now at InsideIndianaBusiness.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Off the Record Podcast. I'm Nate Feltman, CEO of IBJ Media, and I'm talking with Kevin Brenniger, CEO of the Indiana Chamber of Commerce. So if Kevin Brenniger had a magic wand and said, this is the one thing that we could do as policymakers, as a state, to make Indiana a better place to live, better place to uh, grow a company, start a company. What would that one thing be? I think sitting here in 2023, it would be find ways to wave my wand and greatly lift up the skills of our adult workforce because that's related to so many other things. And I mentioned about the talent-driven economy where business climate, regulatory climate, tax climate, they're still important. And we've checked those boxes. We've got, you know, according to the Tax Foundation, the ninth best business tax climate in the country and, and all our other positives that are, that are giving IEDC that great sandbox to go to sell and recruit. And they've put major score on the board and my hats are off to them. But it is a more talent-driven economy, and in that, when you look at the metrics there, we're a lap or two behind. And it's unacceptable to have 60% of our adult workforce that has dropped out of high school not in the workforce. It's unacceptable to have only 31% of all third through eighth graders statewide not be proficient on both the math and, and English part of iLearn, which means 69% didn't test proficient. And our workforce and, and our, our, the skills and the knowledge of our citizenry is going to determine how successful we will be in the future. So that, that's the one thing I would do is just lift all that up because it relates to 
so many other things like, you know, lower educated folks have poor health metrics. They're not starting businesses as much and uh, causes our, you know, our per capita personal income rank keeps dropping because our, our incomes are not growing as fast. And it's because people don't have the skills to command the higher incomes, at least not at the same rate and level that, that we see folks in other states. That's an important one that we've got to make progress on. So, Kevin, as you look back over the last 31 years at the chamber, last 22 as CEO, what are the policy changes, the, the changes that the chamber was involved in advocating for that you're most proud of? We produce a um, it's kind of a living, breathing victories document since the turn of the century. And um, we keep kind of cramming things out and some things have to go by the wayside. But I think the improvement in our tax climate, eliminating the inventory tax, corporate gross, having eliminated the property and, and personnel factors on the income tax that used to penalize companies for having people and property here, reducing the, the personal property tax, the business machinery and equipment tax burden, things like telecommunications form, establishing high-reaching standards and accountability, becoming, again, the first right-to-work state in the Midwest, and on and on. But my personal favorite just me, not necessarily speaking for the chamber, was daylight savings time. Tell us why. Well, I mean, one, I'm a golfer. Um, <laughs> and before we observed daylight savings time in the month of June, it would get light at 4.30 in the morning. Well, there's a whole lot more people awake and wanting to do things at 9 o'clock at night in the summer than there are at 4.30 in the morning. Now, granted, there are those early risers, and they want to get out and run and work out and whatever, and I... I, my hats are off to them, but there's all kinds of evidence. Plus, not observing daylight savings time was what I referred to for businesses as death by a thousand paper cuts because nobody outside of Indiana knew or cared what time it was in Indiana until they missed a, a call or a meeting or a delivery didn't show up on time. And even us here in, in the part of the state that didn't change their clocks – you know, you go to Evansville or Northwest Indiana, it's like, oh, wait a minute, what time are they on? Well, now we're not all in the same time zone, and I don't believe we ever should be because the counties in Northwest Indiana should be connected to Chicago on Central Time, and the ones in Southwest Indiana should be connected to Illinois and Kentucky that are parts of there that are on Central Time. But at least we know all year round that we're in one time zone. And the people, or, you know, the rest of the country know Indianapolis is in the eastern time zone and Lake County is, is in the central time all year round. Did all of your hole-in-ones and birdies come come after? Is that, is that part of it? <laughs> come after the, the time zone uh, um, change? Actually, only one hole-in-one on the double eagle. Of course, the double eagle took place uh, on the – Pacific Coast and Bandon Dunes. So okay. I was I was in another time zone <laughs> okay. when it happened. The other three were uh, the holes in one were all here in Indiana. But you've had uh, the chance over the last number of years to work with many governors, and uh, which ones stand out to you as most effective, easiest to work with, biggest character? Uh, give us some governor stories. Well, that's interesting because I um, last night at the the retirement. For the celebration, I said I've had the privilege of getting to be on a first-name basis with the last eight governors, going all the way back to, to Otis Bowen. Bob Orr was a shrewd 
businessman and very passionate and pushed through a, a difficult and controversial A-plus education plan in 1987. Frank O'Bannon was just an absolute gentleman and was always very kind to me. And and, and even though uh, his administration didn't necessarily agree with the chamber on, on a lot of things, he was always you know respectful and would listen. And he pointed me to the to the tax commission and things. Mitch Daniels, we we all know, you you know as much or more about him as I do. He's very visionary, very no-nonsense. He just immediately focused on getting the state's financial house in order, which it was not uh, when he took office. And, you know, he he took that blade mentality uh, and brought that to to the state house and, you know, drove some major policy changes. Uh, One of the early ones was, besides getting the, the financial house in order, was major moves. Uh, and then later, I believe it was his last year, got on board and, and helped push uh, Right to Work, which you know from your IEDC was a game changer. I mean, IEDC yeah. used to keep, I don't think they still do because it's, it's been so long ago now, that used to keep track of the companies that said that they were making the commitment to any, either directly, first and foremost, because or it was a factor was that we were right to work state and the, the site selectors used to Absolutely. tell us yeah. tell us that um, we didn't make we didn't make the cut yeah well I, I used the baseball now as I said you know there were thirty to forty percent of the opportunities that we didn't get a chance to even step in the batter's box and take a swing at that's exactly right your successor has been hired by the by the chamber her name is Vanessa Green Senders as she comes into her role after your 30 plus years now at the chamber what what advice do you give the next leader uh, Vanessa and her and her job as she works to continue the the great improvements that have been made well we have been a lot in fact we were together uh, most of the afternoon with our senior management team and then our government affairs team and we've been meeting regularly um, we're going to stay in touch. After I leave, I have a consulting contract to, to help out. Things I've said to her is this organization, and it was repeated many times last night, you know, has accomplished a lot. We have, I've told her that, and I believe this, when it comes to public policy, we have the most important and powerful board of directors of any organization in the state. We have great support from our board members. We have a great staff and think bold, Go after the goals that are in this 2035 plan. Leverage the relationships. She's, we've had this two-and-a-half-month overlap period where not being from Indiana, there's a learning curve there and a getting-to-know-people curve that she's been working very aggressively on, out meeting folks, uh, legislators, board members, other potential partners like yourself uh, did the Engage program uh, last week. While I'm just keeping the trains running, and so it gives her the luxury of doing that, not having to, you know, make the big decisions or you know anything, and just realize this is a powerful voice for Indiana, and you know, don't underestimate that, and just keep driving things forward. Uh, my mantra uh, as president has been to our advocacy team: let's keep putting score on the board, and it was fitting that. The reception and the dinner last night was in the old practice court at Gamebridge where there's a big scoreboard uh, on the wall, you know, and I pointed that and I said, that's what we do is we, we keep putting score on the board so that we move Indiana ever forward. She's full of energy, very strong advocacy and, and public policy background, albeit in Washington, D.C., but very well prepared and suited to take the reins. And I'm 
excited to see how things go with the chamber in the future. You know, I care so deeply about this organization, and um, I've told them I'm I'm there at a phone call away. So, in addition to the being available, like you said, uh, being available when when called upon. What other things are you going to pursue? Uh, are you going to play more golf? Or are there things, other things that you haven't had a chance to get to over the last uh, number of decades that you say, I'm going to spend more time on? Well, first and foremost, I'm going to spend more time with my wife, who has endured years and years of late nights at the state house and overnight travel around the state and around the country in, in some cases. We're going to travel together. Our, both of our children got married this year. Congratulations. So, um, Kim is impatiently waiting for grandchildren. <laughs> so we, we're hoping that's that's in our future. I'm also connecting with um, one of our board members who has a, an HR company, and um, I'm going to join their team as an adjunct coach. I, you know, I mentioned earlier in this conversation that I've had all these mentors and sports coaches and people that have helped me along, pushed me along, guided me, given me support. And I want to I want to pay it forward. I want to give back to young and up and coming leaders and, and help them be the best that they can possibly be. So I've been doing in my spare time some training to get ready oh, for that good. and uh, make myself available. I've also told the, the governor and his folks that, you know, I won't be a registered lobbyist anymore at the end of the year. And, you know, if you've got a commission or a task force or an agency that needs help, I, I'm so feel well connected. And I didn't mention Eric and I should have in your governor's question. He's been really good for the business community. He's been a good partner as well as his internal team. And I've told him if there's some way I can help you finish out your second term and put some more score on the board, I'm a phone call away. That's great. I'm, I know there's going to be no shortage of uh, your, your. I hope your wife doesn't get mad because I know people are going to be calling, and it sounds like you already got some some ideas. I, I, I think I think she's expecting it, but it'll it'll st- it'll be managed. And uh, being president of the United Chamber of Commerce is, I mean, it's not governor, it's not a university president, but it's pretty close to twenty four seven, particularly during session and at other times of the year. So it won't be that, and, and that'll be an improvement in terms of time that we're able to spend together and the flexibility we'll have to do things. Well, Kevin, we've made it to the off-the-record speed round where I give, oh, yes. give you some quick uh, questions, and you hopefully give me some quick replies, and uh, we'll make our way through. So our first question is your favorite movie. I'm going to throw you a curveball and say a movie called Hidalgo. I know it. About the, the Pony Express pony that raced in the Arabian Race a true story back in uh, from the 1880s, I believe it is, in Frank Hopkins. I just Good I like that movie. It's got one of my favorite actors, Omar Sharif, in it as well. Favorite place to vacation? It's rapidly becoming our our new home down in Florida. Uh, we just spent four days with our children and their spouses uh, for an extended weekend, and we're settling in down there. But you know, you can't. You also can't be Kauai. The island of Kauai, the Garden Island, is uh, just breathtaking. Favorite musical artist? I'm not going to give you one. Eagles, Doobie Brothers, Chicago, Jackson Brown. That's that's kind of my those are my good. High that's list. your genre. That's a good one. Those are all good. What's the first thing you do in the morning? At my age, I could say going to the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> Frankly, it's probably check my phone, scan it, see if there's anything really important. You know, something from a board chair. Or, or a staff member who's having a crisis or something, just to check in and get ready ready for the day. Title of the last book you read? The Last American Folk Hero. 
I believe is the title. It's the story of Bo Jackson, who was, you know, now that we've got cell phones and video replays and all that, the concept is that he's the last great, great athlete, and I believe maybe the best athlete ever, for which some of his feats and his accomplishments there is no video record of. He once jumped over a car. He both, you know, was a star football player, but of all things, he was a high jumper in high school and was on the track team part of the time he was in college and also the baseball team. And, you know, uh, if you've watched that 30 for 30 on Bo Knows, anyway, it's just just a great book. And uh, some of the feats that people talk about that they saw him do, but for which there's no video record, are just amazing. What food can you not live without? Seafood. Best advice you ever received? You can do this, particularly when I left the Senate and went to work for the chamber, and then particularly when I became president, that you've got this, you can, you can do this, just work hard and, and be yourself and, and go forward. Advice for a young person who wants to become a leader? Get involved in different organizations as a volunteer, as a committee member, et cetera, so that you get exposed to different organizations. Find, I guess in this day and age, maybe one of it is, is get back to the office. My son is a, um, he's got a JD MBA. He's working uh, in the business section of a law firm and he goes in every day because he wants that interaction with the partners for the learning and the mentorship and it's helped him advance faster and farther than other associates who've chosen to stay home and work remotely and tend to get forgotten. And so I think, I guess that goes back to one of some advice that, that I've, I've said this for years and years and years, and that is you must be present to win. As an aside, I, I just had another leader that you would know well, I'm not going to name his name, tell me today the exact same thing. Uh, and it's, you know, it's coming out of the pandemic and, and, uh, and, and this work from home and remote working phenomena, but uh, that's a good one. That's a great uh, advice for a young person. Well, Kevin, you've been uh, wonderful to spend time with us on the Indiana 250 Off the Record podcast. I want to thank you for all of your many, many contributions to this great state, for your long service as uh, the CEO of the Indiana Chamber. And I know you'll continue to do great things helping our state advance. So thank you for everything you've done, Kevin. Nate, thank you very much. Coming from you and and the, the role and the impact you've had on Indiana and are having still here with the IBJ, those words mean a whole lot to me and are deeply appreciated. Thanks to Kevin Brenniger, CEO of the Indiana Chamber of Commerce, for our conversation today. To learn more about other leaders on IBJ Media's Indiana 250 list, go to indiana250.com and look for a page two feature each week in IBJ. We'll be back with a new Indiana 250 off-the-record conversation soon.